As I said earlier, our scripture passage is from the 22nd Psalm. Uh, Having covered the uh, first 20 or so verses last week, we move to verse 21 to 31 as our scripture reading this morning. Now, as a little preface to this passage, we recall that um, Psalm 22 is the crucifixion psalm. But that's only half correct. It's the crucifixion psalm in terms of verses 1 through 21a. From 21b to the rest of the psalm, it's the exaltation of Christ and what Christ in his sovereignty does after the resurrection to promote the work, his own work, through the gospel throughout the world. We're going to be looking at that this morning and uh, when I return from our vacation time in a couple of weeks. Psalm 22, beginning at verse 21. These are the words of Christ. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And in verse 21b, we have a change in tone. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, give us your Holy Spirit in such an ample measure as we give our attention to the word this morning that we can understand what Christ is teaching in this psalm. We pray that we can understand this for the benefit of our lives as believers, that we would know the calling to which we've been called, that we would understand what it means to serve the living God, that we'd find in here that which would strengthen us and encourage us and motivate us to live faithfully for the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Now, in this second part of Psalm 22, we really come to the last and great theme that we find in the teachings of David in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. We've been looking at, uh, throughout this year, uh, Christ in the Old Testament, uh, where Jesus had said to the Jewish leadership, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they which bear witness 
of me. And he went on to tell them that Moses had borne witness of him. And so we've been looking at the ways in which the Old Testament scriptures, uh, given the indications in the New Testament and the clear places in the New Testament, proclaim Christ in many different ways. Uh, we saw how in the Old Testament, especially in the first five books, that there are specific and concrete uh, prophecies per se, but also Christ is revealed thematically and redemptively. Uh, Christ in terms of being the rock or Christ as the, uh, the analogy with the bronze serpent that's held up in the wilderness or Christ who is himself the temple, Christ who is himself the sacrifice, uh, Christ who is himself the priest. Uh, a multitude of ways that we have looked at, we find the themes related to Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ presented in the Old Testament. And then we came and have come to the teachings of David. We began by looking at God's great covenant with David. And then how the New Testament treats David as a prophet who was proclaiming the time of Christ. And so we looked at passages that related to what was the primary purpose of Christ's coming. To come as a servant, to come in obedience, to come as a sacrifice. We looked at the hostility that was going to be brought up against Christ. We found that in Psalm 2 that everything described in the Passion Week uh, concerning Jesus was already predicted a thousand years before Christ came. There they opposed Jesus, the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders, against Christ, against God the Father, and against his anointed one. And then we saw how not only does this opposition manifest itself, but then this opposition to Christ shows up in how Christ is executed, how Christ dies. And so we spent time looking at the first section of Psalm 22, the crucifixion of Christ, the reality that it was God's purpose to put his own son to death, that Christ would be forsaken in our place, that God would make Christ the curse, that God would make Christ the sin in our place so that we might have everlasting life. Now we come to the second half of the psalm, and the second half of the psalm is going to present in, in three large themes what Christ is saying will be the global impact and the global effect of his work on behalf of sinners. Three great themes of which the first is worship, which is the only one we have time to consider this morning. So I'm going to call your attention to verses 22. Uh, through 26, uh, those five verses, which are going to be unified around this particular idea, that the work which Christ did in his crucifixion, then the application and outworking of that work has this fundamental purpose, that Christ would transform those whom he saves to be worshipers and servants of the living God. What is the most fundamental purpose of the work of Christ? To take those who, because of their sin, did not want to and could not ever worship God truly and transform them into what they were created to be in the very beginning in Adam, to be those who would serve and worship the living God. Verses 20 through, through 26 presents Worship as its central idea, its central theme, with Christ teaching 
and Christ presenting that this is what his own work is to result in. What did the work of Christ accomplish? Well, the Father seeks those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what the work of Christ has accomplished. Now, there are seven particulars that we're going to move through fairly quickly in verses 22 to 26. And I want us to get the perspective here. This is Christ who's teaching, and Christ who's teaching about worship. But it's also clear that Christ is the one who is leading in worship. Christ leads in the worship of his people in such a way as to transform them into becoming those who will worship and serve the living God. So, Christ is the one who leads in worship. But Christ is the only one who truly leads in worship. Because of this reason, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he is the way and the truth and the life with respect to everything. He is the way of worship, and he is the truth of worship, and he is the life of worship, and no man comes to the Father in worship except by Christ. There is no approach to God in any way whatsoever that is apart from Christ, and therefore our worship of God has to be that which comes to God through Christ. Because the Scriptures have declared to us Uh, There is no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. And that we have the Lord Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek to be that great high priest who sits at the Father's right hand, who always prays and intercedes for us by the power of his indestructible life and who even now leads his people into worship. So... Looking at verses 20 through 26, we see Jesus teaching seven particulars about his leading of worship that will transform his people. First, Christ leads in worship by his own preaching. Look at verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The first and most fundamental thing that Christ does is he preaches the name of his father to those that he counts as his brothers. Now, this would be uh, one of two primary principles of worship. That true worship has to be focused upon the reality of who God truly is, which was given to us in his name when God revealed to Moses in the burning bush that I am who I am. The true God is the eternal and self-sufficient God who does not need anything else for his own existence. He is the God who leans on no one, but the God upon whom we all must lean. The ever-living God. Christ preaches and reveals that God. This is why the Apostle John says in his first chapter, verse 18, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of his Father, he has made him known. There is no understanding of God apart from Christ. 
There was no understanding of God in creation apart from Christ. There's no understanding of God in Scripture apart from Christ. And there's surely no understanding of God in your personal experience, however significant you think that might be, that does not ultimately validly come from Christ. Only if it comes from Christ are your experiences ever to be considered of righteousness and truth. Christ is all and Christ is everything. And Christ reveals the Father by his preaching and leading of worship. Secondly, in that same verse, we read, uh, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Christ. He says in the midst of the congregation of his brothers, he is going to be praising God. He is leading his people by demonstrating by his own example, this is what is of first importance. What must our life consist in? Our life must consist in the worship of the living and true God. And Christ leads that way. Now, we look at this verse and we say, hmm, notice that Christ says, in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of his people. And we have the clear statement in Scripture that wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, Christ is present with them. So whether the congregation is small or whether the congregation is immense, Christ has promised to be in the midst of his people and his purpose there is to lead them in the praise of his Father. But further notice, not only does Christ make known the true God, the proper response to God is what Christ is modeling by his example. The proper response to God. Praise, honor, glory. As the psalmist has said, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. The index of where our heart happens to be on this particular concept is measured by this thought. What we think of most highly, what we value most deeply, that we praise. What we think of most highly, what we value most deeply, it's that to which we give our praise. Christ, by his preaching, leads us to understand, to think most highly of, to value most deeply the Lord our God who is the I am who I am so that we would praise him as the one that we think most highly of, as the one that we value most deeply as he so richly deserves. It's also noteworthy that in this verse 22, the writer to the Hebrews quotes this. Uh, he quotes this verse to prove that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is also incarnate, that the Word was made flesh, and therefore he is a true brother to all those who are redeemed. When you think of who you are, 
if in your thoughts about yourself and your quiet moments of reflection does not move quickly to the biblical reality that you are a brother or sister of the one who is the sovereign son of God, then you are thinking less highly of yourself than you ought. Do you realize that that we ought to measure how great the love the Father has for us in this, that we are called children of God, and such we are, the Apostle tells us. So when you are demeaned by others, devalued, and in whatever you're doing, disrespected by people that do not share your faith or like Christianity or whatever it might be, stop and remember who are you eternally anchored to. The Lord Jesus Christ calls you his brother. And he comes to lead his brethren in worship of his father. There is nothing else that is greater about who we are than the fact that we belong to Christ and Christ owns us as his own. Then thirdly, we see that Christ leads his people in worship in verse 23 by calling them and exhorting them to worship. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now here we see that Christ exhorts, uh, first of all, those who fear God and he calls them to worship and he calls them to praise God. And that's the first and primary calling of those who truly fear God. It's to worship. And Christ calls us to worship. But further, we see that Christ also exhorts and calls the seed of Jacob, the seed of Israel, to render glory and fear and awe to their God. We must never forget, in light of this passage, that it was the very mission of Christ to come into this world first to his own people. And even though his own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, children who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of the, fo- will of the man, but born of God. The call that Christ gives not only to all who would fear God, but even to his Jewish kinsmen, is the reason why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jew and Gentile are still called by Christ to worship the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But the only worship that is acceptable by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is worship that comes through his son. Just as an aside, don't make the mistake of believing 
that uh, Muslims worship the Abrahamic God. Please do not make that mistake in your thinking. And Jews only really come to worship the Abrahamic God when they come to recognize that the Abrahamic God has a son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, verse 24, Christ turns the attention of those who worship to the cross. And here is the second primary reason for true worship. This foundation is that worship must always be grounded in the person and work of Christ. Verse 24 says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So the one who is despised, the one who is afflicted, uh, the one who cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, The first verse of this psalm is what's referred to here in verse 24. The one who makes this cry of being forsaken is now the one who can say, But in my forsakenness, God the Father did not abhor me. But he heard me when I cried to him. Which is simply a validation that it was the mission of the Father for his Son to come into this world and to be forsaken in this way through his death upon the cross. As we said before, to become that curse, to become that sinful sin offering before the Father, to become the one upon whom the Father laid our sins, then being forsaken by God as our substitute and representative, he might, to the fullest degree, satisfy all of the demands of God's holy justice. For Christ's sake, for our sake, for our sake to give to us through the death upon the cross exactly what we have needed in order to be reconciled to God. So the Father has seen the death of His Son as the perfect sacrifice that puts away sin. And in this verse, Jesus is assenting to the fact, Jesus is asserting the fact that the Father has accepted Him. The Father has accepted His work. Now this is why We are able to be worshipers of God. God has transformed us. God has changed us. God has has taken that which made us entirely unable to give any worthwhile worship to God, even if we wanted to, and replaced that with the perfection of His own Son in terms of a penalty paid by the death of Christ and the perfect life lived in terms of the righteousness of Christ so that we could be those who could worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the work of Christ is why the holy angels in heaven and the redeemed church in heaven uh, involve themselves in the deepest of worship. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 says this, When they sing, they sing this song, that Christ was slain and that he purchased with his blood people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that he's made them to be a kingdom and priests 
to God. And when they sing this song, all of heaven then breaks out the voices of myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands of other angels loudly singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then further, they sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The central foundation parallel to side by side with understanding the true name of the living God, the God who says, I am who I am, that God, his son, his perfect work upon the cross, the pillars of worship to recognize God, the creator, God, the redeemer, the foundations for why we worship what we lost in creation regained and surpassed in our redemption so that we worship the true and living God because of what Christ has done for us that's the angelic theme that is the high note of their song and likewise it will be our theme in glory Fifthly, in verse 25, the first part, Christ leads us by his own example of worship in the great congregation. He says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. And though this repeats what we said earlier, I put it in again because it comes out of this verse. And I just love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about it. Spurgeon says, the one subject of our master's song is the Lord alone. The one subject of the song of the Lord Jesus Christ is his Father and the perfection of who he is and the greatness of his love and the wisdom of all of his providences. The focus of Christ's own worship was his heavenly Father. And then immediately Spurgeon gives this application which follows from the example of Christ when Spurgeon says, the Lord and the Lord only is the theme which believers handle when he gives himself to imitate Jesus in praise. We're called to be like Christ. Our sanctification is being conformed to the image of Christ. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to worship as Christ did, to make the true and living God our great theme in terms of our worship. To follow Christ. To give all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to this one thing, giving God all the glory. Sixthly, Christ leads us into worship by Christ himself fulfilling his vows. He says in verse 25, the second half, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. Christ's own vows are his solemn promises made to the Father on behalf of the redeemed that what he has vowed and promised to do as the Redeemer, he will most certainly accomplish and fulfill to the full measure of the calling to give his life as a ransom for many, 
and then to be the guarantee that all his sheep shall never perish. The great vow that Christ has made. It's the vow that he fulfills before all of us. In John chapter 6, Jesus declares these promises to his disciples when he says, verse 37 to 40, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What a promise. You come to Christ, he will never cast you out. And then verse 38, 39, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. What a great promise. Christ promises he will lose none of all of those who come to him by the sovereign working of God, and he will raise us up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What greater promise can we have than this? That if you will look to Christ, the Son of God, if you will believe in Christ, the Son of God, He will grant you everlasting life. And He promises and vows that He will raise you up from the grave on the last day. These are the vows that Christ has promised and fulfills in order to lead His people to become more and more those who will worship the true and living God. And then lastly, verse 26. Christ leads the afflicted in worship. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now what Christ promises here are beatitudes for those who are truly his the afflicted that Christ refers to in this verse are no different than those that Christ addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3, when Christ says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ promises to all who truly worship the true God, our Father who is in heaven, that we will have the greatest blessedness of all creatures that he has created and redeemed. For we will have and have now every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus.
What a tremendous promise to hold on to, especially by our brothers and sisters of the persecuted church. And what a great promise to hold on to as we see the collapse of our own culture and its animosity and hatred to all things concerning Christ. We are reminded we have one main purpose and calling in the midst of a very broken world. Christ has called us because of what he has done for us, being forsaken by God in our place, to be transformed by his work within us, that we would be worshipers and servants of the living God. Amen. Father, may we ultimately reckon ourselves the greatest of those honored in all of creation because Jesus died for us and Jesus works in us to transform us, to give us the greatest purpose we could ever possibly have. And that is to live in such a way that we bring glory to the holy name of the God, the God who claims to be the I am who I am. That we might serve him now and forevermore. Remind us again and again, there is no greater purpose in this life than to worship and serve the living God. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.